Well, this isn't an easy scripture to delve into. We haven't, uh, we've had more than a few of these challenging scriptures along the way this fall, which might be a reminder about any number of things, but perhaps an important reminder about how honest and realistic scripture can truly be, that the Bible reflects humanity right back at us and usually with more clarity than we would like. God knows that we're not always good and that the sinful decisions of some have unfair consequences on a far-reaching circle of people around them. It's not an easy truth to face. But if there's some good news to hold to simultaneously, we might well hold on to it from the start, and that is that God knows this reality and grieves it, that God knows the pain of so many and is working to heal and redeem all of creation. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. One of the more fun things about parenting is getting to see your child experience some of the same things that you did at their age. I'm going to see a bit of this because my mother kept a lot of the toys that my brothers and I had as children, and so now when my son visits her house, they're there for him to play with one generation later. Now, of course, not every figurine or plaything could survive the years, and for at least one yellow and red plastic dump truck, it is almost a miracle to still see it around and intact. I hadn't thought about this truck for years until my son had it out the other day, and I saw it, and it all came flooding back to me. It's just a, I don't know, a medium-sized dump truck. It's kind of the perfect size from a small child to hold with both hands as they lean over it, and they put it on the ground, and they just push it around in circles all the way through the house. And I had a younger brother who absolutely loved this truck for that reason, and I can still remember kind of the humming noise that these plastic wheels made against the floor as he went around and around the house for hours and days on end. But it was never designed well enough to be that well-loved. Every piece of this truck was plastic. It's like they didn't know that other building materials existed. It was plastic and flimsy plastic, right down to the front and the wheel axles that held on the wheels. And it was those axles that finally gave way many, many years ago. After one too many loops around the house, those spindly little axles broke in two, and the truck couldn't move. So obviously, it needed fixed, because we weren't about to let this truck go. And so we fixed it, or at least we tried, using a bit of glue to put the axle back together. I mean, that was the obvious solution, quick and easy to get that truck back out there on the road, which ran in loops around the house. But the truck wasn't the same as it was before. That glued point was weak, and it was prone to failure. And so over the next days and weeks with this truck, the second axle broke, and what was glued never stayed fixed for very long. We could hardly keep it glued together long enough to justify playing with it at all in the first place. And it was starting to look like this truck had run its last loop through the house, like it was destined for nothing more than the garbage, just one more bit of plastic to be left in a landfill where it wouldn't decompose for some 500 years or something like that. Because the quick fix rarely seems to last. 
whether in families or house repairs or relationships or car engines or in plastic dump trucks. That easy spot of glue will probably break in less time than it took to dry in the first place, no matter how much it is that we want it to succeed. The quick fix rarely lasts, but all may not be lost. We eventually took that beloved but failing plastic dump truck to my father, who disappeared with it for a few days. And when it was returned to us, it was not with a quick fix, but a full repair. The familiar plastic wheels were now mounted on sturdy wooden axles that he had made just for the truck. And a quick test drive proved that the impossible had come to pass, and what was broken had now been repaired, and it has lasted for several decades since, to now be run around by my child in my mother's house. Our scripture today may well be the story of a quick fix applied when the hard work of repair was what was necessary. Nathan, comes to the, prophet, uh, Nathan the prophet comes to King David with a story. See, there were two men. One was rich, one was poor. They lived in the same place. And the rich man had all the things that a rich man could have, everything he might ever want, while the poor man had just one thing, which was a small lamb, which he raised and loved like a child. But when the rich man needed to prepare a meal for a house guest who had come to town, he didn't draw from his own vast flock, but instead he stole and slaughtered the poor man's single beloved lamb. And thus, the story ended. And David is irate. He is furious beyond belief, declares that anyone cruel enough to do such a thing must be practically possessed by a demon, and insists that the man restore the lamb seven times over, to which Nathan simply says, it's you. And David's whole scathing indictment of the rich man comes toppling down on his own head. He is the perpetrator the demonic, selfish, heartless author of such suffering. But that's hardly a surprise to anyone reading the story, and it's certainly not a surprise to David either. David knows what he did. The story doesn't allow David any recourse, any alternate op- uh, interpretations where he is somehow not at fault or where he can pass his blame onto someone else. From the very start, the narrator makes it clear that David is in the wrong spot and then it all goes wrong from there. See, it was the time when kings go off to war, we are told, but David doesn't go anywhere. He stays put. If he had, if he had gone and led his troops in battle as kings did, then this story might have gone very differently. But David shirks his responsibilities and his duties to lounge about his rooftop, peering down at the city around him. And he sees Bathsheba, who is in her rightful place, and fulfilling her duty under temple law to cleanse herself following menstruation. But still, as is so often the case in crimes against women, there are frequently attempts to blame Bathsheba for David's assault. It's a tactic as old as humanity is old, reaching back to that very first sin when Adam stood before God and said, it's not my fault that I ate from the tree you told me not to eat from. It's this woman whom you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the forbidden tree. And so still, we sometimes ask, what was she doing? What was she wearing? As if passing around blame is ever the right or righteous thing to do, as if accusing someone else for our sin ever even worked in the first place. Bathsheba was doing nothing wrong, 
and everything right. She was married, and David knew it, just as well as he knew how many times over he was married, because it was more than one, and still he sent servants to take her. The story makes it clear that David is the actor in every element of their interaction. He sees, he inquires, he sends, he takes. It is all coerced by a king with no one to keep his power in check. And then nothing happens, at least for a few weeks or a few months, until Bathsheba sends a two-word note to her assaulter, I'm pregnant, she says, and confronted by his own sin, what does David do? Our reading made a little bit of a leap here to try to keep the story at a manageable length for those who have to read it in our service. But the short story of what happens in between when Bathsheba becomes pregnant and David marries Bathsheba is that David does not repent in any way whatsoever. Instead, he orchestrates a cover-up. King David has Bathsheba's husband purposefully killed in battle so that he can marry Bathsheba just as quick as possible. As David knows what he did, David knows it well enough to try to hide it, but he cannot keep it from the eyes of God. What David has done, we are told, was evil in the Lord's eyes. So God sends Nathan. Nathan, the prophet who uses a story to confront David with his own sins, and now since his cover didn't work and he can't hide it, what does David do? David is said to have written Psalm 51 in this moment in that time after he has been visited by the prophet Nathan, when he has been confronted with his own sin. And that psalm tells of a grieved and a conflicted heart crying out for forgiveness. Have mercy on me, God, David writes, according to your faithful love. Readers throughout history have long cherished this psalm and, and in fact, cherished it above many others because they have found comfort in the outpouring of emotion here and that thread of unabashed confidence in God's far-reaching forgiveness, that we can open our hearts to God and be forgiven, is undeniably a bedrock of the Christian faith, a foundational element on which we build our churches and our very lives. The psalm is at once everything it says it is. It is a description of the joy of forgiveness. And yet it is nevertheless a puzzling inclusion in David's story. I've sinned against you, against you alone, David is said to have written in this psalm, talking to God. And theologians and commentators have said ever since that this turn of phrase surely does not mean that our sins only impact God while leaving those around us unscathed. Because we know that sin damages and harms indiscriminately. It certainly did in David's case. And we can only hope that David recognized this. And then there's a curious phrase in one of the last verses that we read. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean, David is said to have written. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. This can sound like a very reasonable metaphor to our ears, but that tends to be because we speak a language and participate in a culture that has often and uncritically associated whiteness with righteousness, even as such unthinking assumptions can support racist tendencies in how we approach the world around us and keep us from asking deeper questions of what is even going on in this metaphor. I found in a scholarly article one scholar who read this passage who spoke the native language of Bengali, 
which does not have the innate connotations we have in our language, who pointed out that leprosy throughout the scriptures is characterized for its white color, and it is hyssop that is used to cleanse and purify the leprous person. And so what could be a straightforward metaphor here may in fact also be a paradox, revealing David's experience with that all too familiar truth. The thing which cleanses exists at the same time as the consequence of the things still there. That the forgiveness for our sins and the consequences of our sins can coexist all too comfortably. Forgiveness is an altogether vital part of our faith and of the healing process. But it does not, at least on its own, undo what has been done. And so when we treat it as a quick fix, we skip and we miss something important. The psalm goes on, past where we read, to wonder what it is exactly that God wants and surely not sacrifices and entirely burned offerings, it says. It suggests that the answer might lie in doing good things for God's favor and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that have been torn down. It might come in the hard work it takes to put back together that which has been broken. The work that begins in forgiveness may find its culmination in our participation of that healing restoring work. David tells Nathan that the man in Nathan's story needs to restore what he took, that he needs to set things right again. And so David suggests seven lambs as an appropriate way to make up for the one lamb taken, as if the lamb so loved could be so easily replaced. But when Nathan takes the finger that David has pointing at this fictional man, and redirects it towards the one at the throne, David no longer speaks of restoration and setting things right. He apologizes only once, and it comes a little bit later in the story. He says simply, I have sinned against the Lord. And he is right, but that's it. Even after Nathan makes clear the consequences that will follow David's sin, the ways that his breaking of covenant is going to damage his family and the whole nation, As a result, this single statement of apology is the extent of David's response. It is a quick and easy fix, but not a sustainable one. It might well be that David has too much to consider doing anything else. God has given David so much, Nathan points out, but David still wanted more. He is caught in some sort of trap of never-ending desire to have power and belongings and influence. And he has tried to cover up his sin to maintain his hold on what he has. And now he's trying to make a quick apology and move on without putting anything else he has at risk. But a quick apology is a poor fix when God is working for the repair and restoration of all creation. Jesus says once that if you are on your way to give an offering to God, some sort of work to repair your relationship with the divine, but you have a quarrel with a sibling, then you are to leave your gift where you stand and go and repair that relationship first. It is no good 
to seek and to claim God's forgiveness while leaving the rest of the world to deal with the consequences of our sinful deeds. Seeking God's forgiveness might ultimately mean putting everything at risk. Everything we have and everything we are, opening ourselves up to that terrible possibility that the terrible things we've done take up more of us than we'd want to admit. Because then we might discover that God does not work small fixes, not in the world and not in us either. God makes major repairs, brings us into the people that we are intended to be, and works major repairs in this terrible but wonderful world. It might just be that this is how God heals in a broken creation. David never seems to learn this lesson. His story spirals downward and further down from here as he forever seeks to move on and get past and never deal with what he has done. And he digs the pit deeper and deeper. What could have happened if he had understood the gravity of his own situation and the possibility? offered by a God whose forgiveness is so far-reaching that involves even restoring us and helping us work in our own redemption. May we never avail ourselves of easy fixes when deeper healing might still be something God wants to work. May we be a people who entrust ourselves to God and to the hard work of forgiveness that leads to repair, that leads to redemption, that leads to new creation. May David's unlearned lesson be one that the rest of us may learn. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite us to continue in worship as we sing together. Our next hymn, Just As I Am, Without One Plea, verses 1 through 3 and 5, if you're pulling it out of the hymnal, um, or we'll put all the words on the screen. Let us sing together. <laughs>